When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jill McCorkle, author of the short story collection, Old Crimes. I think one of the best things we can do as writers is to reach back into our own memories and and maybe not the most recent experience of an emotion, but to go all the way back to to when it is so pure and so clear and not cluttered with all we know. We'll be back with Jill McCorkle after these essential words. Here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is... I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote-unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this, just an I, which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world, we have to support what we love, and there is an energy there that comes back to us. 
So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and become a supporter of First Draft today. It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And on to the show. My guest today is Jill McCorkle, author of the New York Times bestselling novel Life After Life and the acclaimed novel Hieroglyphics. She published her first two novels on the same day in 1984. Five of her books have been named New York Times Notable Books. She has published four short story collections, and four of her stories have appeared in Best American Short Stories. She was recently inducted into the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame, and she currently is on the faculty at the Bennington Writing Seminars. Her new story collection is called Old Crimes, which delves into the lives of characters who hold their misdeeds and secrets close, even as the past continues to reverberate over time and across generations. Many of her characters are longing for the lost era of their youth, reckoning with the hindsight that age offers, and discovering the cost of honesty, failure to act, and half-truths that dictate their assumptions about life in the world. We began the interview with Jill McCorkle sharing what was on her mind when writing these stories. A couple of them were older and already in place, Sparrow and Lineman. And then all the other stories I had in fragments uh, that I had put aside while I was working on my last novel. And I, I have found this in other collections that when I write stories that way, and they sort of sit off to the side together. It's it has the same effect that pieces of a novel would have, and I I find that thematically they start to connect and echo. And of course, what I was writing a lot about in the story lineman was the silence and getting back and connecting to something that's been lost. And then in Sparrow, um, similar, similar, you know, going backwards and sort of piecing together what we know and against what we can never know and somehow making enough sense to go forward. And, and somehow out of that, I felt like all these new stories were finding a similar path, characters having to confront situations in life, um, often things they have no control over and can't change, and looking for a way forward in spite of that. I felt like this is not the totality, but some of the things I saw in here were, I did see this sort of nostalgia, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that in the stories it was nostalgia, but I think there would be maybe an impact on the reader of nostalgia because I think your characters who are generally all in middle or older middle age seem to be a little bit wistful or at least have really important memories of times before there were cell phones, of SO garage stations, of like the lineman who fixes, you know, t telephone lines, like before there were cell phones and computers. So kind of like a simplicity of like the 60s and 70s. So I saw that. I saw a lot of women, but sometimes both parents, mother and father, but also women, like looking back on their lives and especially with adult children, finding these moments that were maybe a moment of irreparable parable damage for the kid or uh, something that just stayed with the kid and looking back at their parenting on maybe what they did wrong, but also kind of a sense of like, this is life. This is how it is, you know, at some point to some of the kids, like get over it. And then you, you brought up Charlotte's Web a few times. So something about like children's literature and our first indelible memories that help shape us we could start there there's more but i think there is this longing um 
for the purity of those early beliefs and hopes and dreams. Obviously, there are a lot of school teachers and librarians along the way. And, uh, you know, I, I do go back again and again to some of the earliest memories in life. You know, I often tell my students that when you're trying to evoke a certain emotion on the page or, or to give feeling to a character, I think one of the best things we can do as writers is to reach back into our own memories and, and maybe not the most recent experience of an emotion, but to go all the way back to, to when it is so pure and so clear and not cluttered with all we know. You know, you, you as a kid, you really know joy and you, you know sadness. Every, I, I always use the analogy of like the Crayola box of crayons, you know, those primary colors. There's no denying what the color is or what you're feeling in those early, early memories. So I, I find myself looking back to childhood a lot and, and what was learned in fairy tales and those scary, scary stories that serve a very good purpose. <laughs> I think something in some of your stories too, which is good for fiction, of course, and we can talk about this in terms of craft, but also just that we don't, as the characters, as the main character in our own life, we don't see the whole picture. So for example, you have two stories in here. One is called Low Tones and one is called Filling Stations. And you have a crossover of some characters in there. So Low Tones is about this woman named Loris, whose husband, Alton, was abusive to her. And, and, and he was kind of two people. When they first got married, they were very in love. And then he turned into something else. And she is having hearing loss. And she can't really hear him anymore. And she sort of revels in that. Um, and he he's he has cancer and he's dying in this story. And she's sort of reflecting on these two people that she loved and her relationship with her son who has left and won't really talk to her until she leaves him. And then later we see filling station and the main character in filling station is very successful and seemingly happy. He has two kids. He has this wife. He's a very successful contractor, but he he's really missing his childhood home where he grew up in a more rural area with his grandparents. And so he goes back and it's turned into a gas station, um, the house. And so he, there's a, a room above the convenience store and he rents it and he doesn't really even know why, but his, one of his biggest role models in his life was his shop teacher. And it turns out that the shop teacher is Loris's husband who was abusive to her. And, but for him, he's like, you know, he, he attends to him throughout his death. He is the, his biggest teacher in life. So I just wanted to ask you about that, about not seeing the whole picture. And if there's anything else you want to say, or if I describe the stories incorrectly, let me know. Well, no, you, you described it perfectly. Those moments of connection on the page are, are what I live for as a writer. You know, when you all of a sudden recognize, oh, this is that person, or or it is someone very much like that person. And again, it's having to look at and confront the much more difficult. You know, I I think I think it would be so much easier for all of us if we said, oh, evil person off the screen, good person, extra time. You know, I always tell my students that when you fall into that, you know, the here's goodness, here's evil, then you're you're writing a comic book. The psychology just does not work. You know, you think of the most hideous criminal in in your imagination and you you have to acknowledge that there was a day when this person was a newborn, you know, and you say, how how did he get from A to B? And of course, there's always a story there, um, the, the consequences of environment. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, 
I think we all learn things from people um, only to later discover something about that person that that makes you cringe, you know? And so do you throw out the good thing that you learned? What, what do you do with it? And um, I mean, in that, in that particular story, my, my character, you know, who has rented the room over the gas station um, doesn't understand who that shop teacher was to his wife. He he's he gets some suggestions um towards the end, but um they don't make sense, you know, the man's dying words um for people who know the broader story, those dying words carry a very different meaning from what the young student takes away. Which story did you write first and what propelled you to the next one? Well, you know, it, it's so interesting. I had the beginning of Filling Station over 20 years ago. My eye is always drawn to those little windows up above convenience stores and old buildings, you know, and you just think, oh, what what is in there? You know, is there somebody? I, I love that Elizabeth Bishop poem, Filling Station, you know, where you've got the so sign. I almost used it as an epigraph, um, but too much. But but I was really inspired by um, because you know she writes about the doily on the chair and and the cat and and you just get the feeling um, you know somebody loves them. That's that's the the line in there. And there's life, you know, life behind. This, these places we take for granted. And so I gave, I had this character with that desire, you know, just seeing one of those places and it's a room for rent and it's like an escape, you know, that you can turn this room into whatever you want it to be and go back. That was my idea originally. But he just, his voice never got off the ground. And so Loris had a full-bodied life with low tones long before I I went back and reclaimed him. You know, I think then the two, I don't know, it, it definitely informed who he was. If low tones came easier to you, were you just curious about Alton the, the abusive husband and the shop teacher and, and want to see him in this other story or how did he carry through? I'm not sure. I think that he was involved in some kind of hate crime. I've been thinking a lot about those people who commit evil acts under a mask in the dark of night and then show up in other walks of life um, to be lauded for what they've done well. And to me, that's the scariest thing. That's one of the scariest things of all. You know, I, I would much rather know who the, who, where the evil's coming from. Um, and so it's, it's that unknown. It's, um, you know, finding one part of the elephant and believing that you know the whole picture. And, and, and I was trying to do that with some of these characters um, because we never know fully what's going on in, in someone else's life. Yeah, and I think we also have blind spots where um, maybe the reader can see something, not always, but like in Sparrow, which you wrote a long time ago, there's this mother who's going to the baseball game and she's cheering on her son and she ends up sitting next to this very quirky, sometimes offensive older woman who she thinks is the grandmother of another player, but it turns out in the end that she's not. And she just has such a blind spot to who she is. And I think there's 
Um, in that case, the reader did not know. Uh, um, you know, they might have guessed. But I think a lot of your characters do walk around their stories with blind spots, which I think is important for fiction. But I'm curious what you think. I mean, it's also just true to life. Well, it, it is true to life. And, and we, we make those assumptions, you know, based on someone's appearance or, or um, um, we, we make a lot of assumptions and we think we know who other people are. I mean, sometimes just because they look like somebody else we know. You know, or have a I mean, there are all kinds of ways. But I, I was talking to one of my kids over the holidays, and I, I forget what the situation was. We were, we were talking about somebody who just couldn't get it together. You know, one of those old stories. And I, and I made the comment, yeah, but you know, in the movie, that's who we're all pulling for. You know, <laughs> in the movie, you you have this person, you know, who's who's like facing the most difficult obstacles. And and then the whole purpose is that you're just hoping this person can beat all the odds. And um, I think as a writer, I'm always hoping um, for those people that that we might easily make an assumption about that's wrong and overlook. Why do you think we can have so much more compassion for them when they're in literature or film? Because we're not directly doing, we're not acting. Um, yeah. I, I think about that. I think about that a lot. I do. Or maybe it's just the space we occupy when we're consuming art that we don't get to occupy during life? I don't know. I don't know either. I, I was looking, you know, in, in anticipation of this, some favorite quotes, and one that I had pulled up was one that Thornton Wilder had in, in a lecture he gave about letter writing, and there's a quote where it's, art is not only the desire to tell one's secret, it is the desire to tell it and hide it at the same time. <laughs> and um and so I think there is there is a lot of that, you know, we're we're telling secrets um but also hiding. And I think in that same way, you know, in life we do a lot of hiding. I I think in life I have a lot of those moments, you know, where I think I should have done I should have done something. I should have been there. And on the page, I like to find those people who they they either have to wrestle through the regret of having not done something or or I give them the ability to do something, to act. I think it's in the very first story, which is about these two young lovers who go off to a hotel together for a weekend and the females kind of realizing like this might not last forever. And at the same time, she's also watching, it's like not a great hotel and she's kind of watching, uh, I think it's someone who works there and their kid who seems, I think they're a foster child or they, they just are very forward with this girl and also a very troubled, or maybe it's actually more in the middle. It's more in the middle. You say, all choices have consequences. It's not about right or wrong, but what's right for you. And after reading the book and going back to that, I felt like it was a perfect first story, but that it also had reverberations through the whole book. I do remember writing it because um, I, I had the idea for that story. And then you know, the the reversal of Roe v. Wade was weighing very heavily, you know, and just thinking of all the, again, all these kids who are out there with no one caring and the effects of it. And the narrator in that story had someone, this guidance counselor, you know, weigh in and make a difference in her life and kind of give her permission to make a choice 
and we know that the young woman who walked into a friendly's bathroom, you know, and had a baby and abandoned it, had no choice. I mean, that was a desperate act. And, and so I wanted to juxtapose the two. Those who in life are told they have a choice and given the choice, the chance to do something differently. And those who are only left to a desperate act. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What do you think that fiction creates? And this is partly craft and partly, you know, just the human feeling of it. When the reader knows something that the characters don't, because you have a few stories like that. I love when that is the case when I'm the reader, because I just think it's, it's automatic suspense. You know, I always tell my students, if you have two characters on the page and the reader knows something about each that the other doesn't know. I mean, so much of your work is done because then all the dialogue starts to take on double meaning. So I do that because, again, I think there's so much we don't know about what's going on in someone else's life. It's just powerful to create it on the page because... You know, again, it's the kind of thing in life that we don't often stop and examine or wonder what what we missed, what we got wrong, what we don't know that might help us better understand a person. Yeah, I think that there's something, too, about revelation much, much, much later Like one of the stories that I think will stay with me for a really long time is act three. And it's about this, this family outing, like this, you know, this, this mother and husband who are bring all their adult children and their various like partners and kids and stepkids together to a place they went to when they were kids. And the mother has a secret that no one knows, but the reader knows or starts to understand. And at the end it's fully revealed and so, so much of that is like just kind of poking with the hot poker, those childhood things that haven't gone away. Like the fact that the son was traumatized by like the towering inferno and that, um, you know, the things as a parent that you think might drive your kids to therapy aren't necessarily the big things. They could be things like that and the way that the kids bicker with each other and that's so much about, um, I think, parenting and what you reckon with it is adult children and the things that you were saying in the beginning that the, that you were so interested in the innocence and that when these parents were raising the kids and doing everything they thought was right was the innocence. And then it sort of disintegrates into something else as you get older and then you have to reckon with it and try to make peace. Absolutely. I mean, I I have said to my children before, you know, I'm like, I if if you can if you can name all the things I've done wrong, you know, all the mistakes, then I I then I'm a success because you know um, that that's evolution, you know, if you can do that and and figure it out and go forward because. I can't imagine there's ever been a parent who actually thought about it, you know, um, who doesn't look back and see all the, all the ways you could do it better. Or if you had another chance, you know, um, my mother has dementia and has for over a decade. And, um, 
now she talks very little, but but for a while she was still talking. And and one of my favorite memories there, and I got I got, I, re, I was able to record this. We were talking one day, and something came up about you know people who spanked their kids, and she said, "Oh no." And and I, she said, well, they shouldn't do that. I said, really? I said, I said, you know, you you spanked. I said, um, so I said something like, I I never spanked my children, but you spanked us. And she said, I did. And I said, yeah, you did. And she said, oh, let's go back and do it again. And I won't do that. And I just thought it was just this lovely moment of grace. And I, I think that in fiction, um, I mean, the Pollyanna me want, wants those moments to happen far more um, than realistically they do happen. But but when they do, I I um, I like to grab them because there's something really, really wonderful in aging into such a place, you know? And I, I think getting older, when you see things you wish you changed, you, you could go back and change. Um, I don't know. There's, there's something positive in it, I, I think, even though you have to admit your error there's something positive. Is there a book or story that you've read in your life that has like your favorite moment of grace? Oh, wow. There's the first thing that just came to my mind is there's, there's a wonderful Catherine Mansfield story called the doll house. And it's um, a situation where these children have been gifted this beautiful doll house and they go to school and and the little girls who live nearby are kind of the outcasts of the town, you know, and they're not allowed to come play. It's like a real class situation. And um and one of the sisters very innocently invites the Kelvy girls over to see the dollhouse because everybody at school's talking about it. And it has a little lamp that actually works. And of course, the girls come over, at which point um, the child gets berated by the housekeeper for inviting the Kelvy girls. And the, these girls are just sort of shamed and have to go home. And they're walking home. And um, the older sister's face is just flushed. She's mortified and so ashamed. And they're sitting there by the side of the road. And the little sister, you have no idea what to expect. And what comes out of her mouth is she says, I seen that little lamb. And, you know, it is, it's a story that just reduces me every time because she took from it that she accomplished something. You know, she saw what everybody was talking about. And it's just this this beautiful moment of grace, you know, that um and again, that this this kid who innocently invited them in, not understanding these imposed boundaries and prejudice. Yeah, I think it's so satisfying when you can as a reader, when you notice those moments of grace but they're not hitting you over the head at all like that seems like the high wire act of the writer I think so sometimes I mean it's just like that moment of awareness I, I think the the writer Ron Rash um I don't know if you know his stories but I think he does that beautifully so often a few of your stories also have these moments when we break as humans, like the lineman had a moment where he hit his wife and, um, you know, Loris would, was telling a time when she told her son that she'd slapped the 
the shit out of him, which she regretted her whole life. And regret is a theme, and we can talk about the epigraph in a minute, but I think the times we break are, obviously they're dramatic, but what, what interests you about them? That you, you can't take it back. You've lost it. You've done something. You can't take it back. I mean, I, and, and it's, it's chilling because it sets you on that path of imagining the very worst deeds a person could commit, you know, um, in that kind of moment of passion. But, but, um, you know, in the case of, of the lineman, yeah, he, he loses it. And I, I don't know, as, as the right, you know, as the writer, you know, really with him in that story, I felt his fury, you know, in the, at, at this wife, but, we also know right from wrong, but you know, it's that very human, um, where the action overtakes reason. And I am intrigued I, of those moments when people act out, you know, it's, it's, uh, almost an involuntary, you know, there is a lot of regret or at least looking back and, uh, with consciousness of these moments and, these people's lives, especially for the parents. And your epigraph is maybe all one can do is hope to end up with the right regrets. And that's from Arthur Miller, the ride down Mount Morgan. And I'm curious about your, you said you had thought about a different epigraph. You know, how do you choose these and how do you want them to inform the the book or, and the reader? When I read that, that, quote, and now it's been, gosh, you know, well over a year ago. Um, I just knew that was right because, because I, I, I am writing a lot about, about regret, you know, or that, that secret, a character holds, harbors, um, you know, a choice in life that, that then, led in a whole different direction and you go back and you wonder. So, and, and just the whole notion of what makes for the, the right regret, you know, <laughs> um, because in the same way, you know, we look back and, and wish we had done this differently or done that as, you know, it's not just the regret for a misdeed. It's the regret for other things things we did not do and wish we had. Yeah. I was talking to a friend yesterday. She was crying actually about something in her life that she felt like she really regretted. And, you know, a lot of times that happens when the person's dead because you can't, you know, you can't fix that. And I was just thinking about, you know, what's behind it. It's like, I'm not sure if it's the byproduct or, the deeper level is guilt, you know, when you talk about regret. And I was like, well, what if, what if you just didn't believe in regret? You know, what if you, what if you could take these, I'm not saying not learn the lessons, but somehow metabolize it into self-compassion and metabolize it into moving forward and, you know, paying it forward in a different way for other people. But I'm just curious what you think about that. No, I, I think that speaking of a moment of grace, I mean, that that would be the ultimate, that you can look at something you regret. Um, and then I think it requires those admission, you know, the admission, the kind of acceptance, and then maybe the hardest step of all, you know, what what can you do? to make a difference after. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've often told my students, you know, for me, a positive ending is not everybody's cheerful at the party and there's a big bow. You know, for me, a positive ending is, is a moment of grace or that moment when a character comes to a threshold and sees, sees everything differently 
or there's recognition and acceptance. This is the way it is, you know. And um, with that clarity, I think we do have the opportunity to turn it in another direction. I see it as hopeful, or or even if that's where the person's life ends, um, there's something very positive in awareness and um, coming to terms with where it is. I, you know, I I've often told people that. I mean, the whole the whole notion of purgatory, you know. I, I think I would say, oh no, please just send me send me to hell. You know, don't make me sit here and wait in the great big unknown. I mean, so for me, the unknown, and of course there's the unknown. There's so much we can never know. Um, and it's what intrigues me the most. And it it's it's what it's what I fear. The most uh like back to loris's husband you know um you don't know what's going on you know as a kid i used to get on my knees and look under my bed every night just to make sure i wanted to see it before it saw me you know <laughs> So we got off on a little tangent about regret but i just wanted to come back and and ask if there's anything that you do hope that an epigraph does for the book or for your reader. Yeah, I I wanted I wanted to plant that word regret and have it there because we all have them. You know, I'm always looking I I want to tap those those universal nerves that connect us all. You know, and and that's that's a big one. I mean, anyone honest has regrets, you know. And everybody has everybody has a secret of some kind. And great, I, I think it's a it's a wonderful source for stories and to develop a character. I, again, I often tell my students if you know what a character loves more than anything and you also know what stands to really hurt this person you know what's the kryptonite that's all you really need to know as far as story structure a lot of your stories have two things going on uh for instance like um in swingers she's has to move out of this house from her boyfriend but there's also these convicts that are picking up garbage or in the sparrow, she's wondering who this person is that's sitting next to her. Well, she thinks she knows. And then she's also like talking about her divorce and her move. So what do you tell your your students about structure? These stories, what they what they really have in common is that I'm a compulsive note taker. And I collect all kinds of little pieces with no idea where they will eventually land. And so I, I, I like to tell my students when something grabs your eye or ear, write it down. You don't have to know immediately what the story is that goes with it or where it goes, but collect. And, and so the examples you just used are my method of these patchwork stories where I always notice the convict bus is painted this pale yellow and or you see these men picking up all the trash by the side of the highway with a man with a big shotgun at either end. I mean, so I see these things in my daily life, you know, and I come home and I write the description and I put the convict bus in a couple of times in there. I think I have it repeated, but so, so for me, that was just a description that I knew I would plant somewhere to evoke the place. And, um, there are tons of those and, and the same with, with Sparrow, there was so much, so much going on, 
you know, my own thoughts about divorce or living miles and miles away from home, um, Little League, and I loved being at Little League games, you know, but, but I often tell my students, any one of these little anecdotes or descriptions, it's not a whole story, you know, so you're looking for, you know, one ball in the air is not a juggling act, and really neither are two, you know, you need you need that third ball up there or whatever to really have some action. And so I'm often looking for just these different pieces that um, I put in the periphery to, um, I don't know, it o over time, I think in that way, my stories have become a little more novelistic in scope uh, because I, I like the sensation that there's just a lot more going on beyond the focus. I know your first story is called Old Crimes, but I'm curious about the title. My editor, Kathy Porris, is the one who suggested it for the for the whole of the collection. And it I knew as soon as she said it, it fit. But I was thinking of things, um, again, what we cannot know. I've, I've always been intrigued by the bog bodies. In fact, I have a little picture right here of the Ede girl, you know, the facial reconstruction they did of her years later. And it's just kind of haunting to me these, these discovered crimes um, that we don't, you know, we may never fully understand. And, and in fact, when I ended my novel, Life After Life, I left a murder unsolved, um, much to the dislike of many readers who were upset with me for not seeking justice. You know, but I, for me, that was the realistic ending. I mean, there, there are so many people who disappear and especially people who already are invisible in our society. And they're not solved, you know? And um, so I'm, you know, the bog bodies, we only, we can only know so much. And so that's, that's where it began. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that influences you as a writer? Yes. And I, I went back and forth on this because there are many favorites, but you know, I, and I hope it's okay that it's from a play, but the opening monologue, Tennessee Williams opening monologue of Tom in the glass menagerie is one I go back to again and again, because it's just, Williams was so much about memory. So great inspiration. Yes, I have tricks in my pocket. I have things up my sleeve, but I'm the opposite of a stage magician. He gives you illusion that has the appearance of truth. I give you truth in the pleasant disguise of illusion. To begin with, I turn back time. I reverse it to that quaint period, the 30s, when the huge middle class of America was matriculating in a school for the blind. Their eyes had failed them, or they had failed their eyes, and so they were having their fingers pressed forcibly down on the fiery braille alphabet of a dissolving economy. In Spain, there was revolution. Here, there was only shouting and confusion. In Spain, there was Granica. Here, there were disturbances of labor, sometimes pretty violent and otherwise peaceful cities such as Chicago, Cleveland, St. Louis. This is the social background of the play. The play is memory. Being a memory play, it is dimly lighted, it is sentimental, it is not realistic, 
In memory, everything seems to happen to music. That explains the fiddle in the wings. I am the narrator of the play and also a character in it. The other characters are my mother, Amanda, my sister, Laura, and a gentleman caller who appears in the final scenes. He's the most realistic character in the play, being an emissary from a world of reality that we were somehow set apart from. But since I have a poet's weakness for symbols, I am using this character also as a symbol. He is the long delayed, but always expected something that we live for. There is a fifth character in the play who doesn't appear except in this larger than life-size photograph over the mantle. This is our father who left us a long time ago. He was a telephone man who fell in love with long distance. He gave up his job with the telephone company and skipped the light fantastic out of town. So tell me more about that. Um, you know, it, it's, I was torn between the opening and the ending, you know, where, where he talks about, um, the, the distance, you know, the greatest distance between time. I've got the quote. Anyway, I, I just love that. It's the whole looking back, uh, it is the quote at the end. I didn't go to the moon. I went much further for time is the longest distance between two places. Um, I love that, all that about memory being set to music, you know, and the evocation of this, this time that's no longer there, but breathing life into it. Um, I'm drawn, you know, I, I was also looking at the opening of Rebecca. I, I think I'm really drawn to a return to a place you know, so that you know that distance has happened, time has happened, but you somehow go back and enter this world. Um, and you can, you can describe it um, with the specifics. It's frozen. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you really liked. Yeah, well, I I was going to come to um, I chose I chose a paragraph speaking of the bog people from from the story Sparrow because I think it was a paragraph that for me informed what I was trying to do in a lot of the stories at large. I once thought I saw the boy who had disappeared or what I had imagined was him after all the stories, his thin slouch and rusty hair. I was about to call out when he turned and caught my eye and I realized how ridiculous. This was a boy and that was 30 years ago. He had become the local martyr and people always thought they'd seen him or the man he would have become if his life had not been interrupted. And there were threats of interruption everywhere. Icy sidewalks and empty wooded shortcuts, lone disheveled men, lean howling coyotes just beyond domestic tranquility, house cats and small dogs lost to the wild on a regular basis. Thank God it wasn't a child, people often said. It could have been a child. I often heard the coyotes with their high-pitched yips as I looked out on the dark woods behind our small house through the kitchen window. The kitchen was so small, there was no dishwasher, so I'd gone back to the old-fashioned sudsy sink and a foam brush. There was something peaceful in the quiet ritual, my reflection against the darkness, the dual vision of safe comfort and unknown fear. Behind us was a wild expanse of woods and in front of us a busy street leading to the turnpike. What waited in the woods or along the highway? What lay buried at the bottom of frozen ponds and rivers that might or might not be unearthed in the future? The known and the unknown of our history 
something I had prompted my junior high students to think about for over a decade. Even the least motivated of students was drawn to unsolved crimes and mysteries, bodies never found, or those discovered thousands of years after the fact, like the Eid girl or Tolland man. And tell me more about why you chose that. Um, I think that this whole notion of, of threat, what threatens us as individuals, um, what threatens our society, and, and to establish that duality of being safe inside our little lives while looking out on the darkness and the unknown. And I realized after I finished this collection, I have a lot of women standing at the sink washing dishes. <laughs> I think, um, and I love my dishwasher. <laughs> I would hate to uh, do it all by hand, but there's something so comforting to me, I think, about um, that image, you know, I think, the, the warm, soapy water. And again, you know, that um, I'm very drawn to, to windows, you know, and um, you're safe and warm and it's freezing outside or dark. Um, and, and again, that duality of where we are. Where do you write? I write here in this office. Um, I store up, but but honestly, I'm a very portable writer. I realized when my daughter was born that if I didn't become portable, I might never write again. And so, as I said, I, I'm a compulsive note taker, and I just keep all those scraps and save up for when when I sit down. And a lot of times, I I I work longhand in a portable way, but then I bring it all here in this space um, where I'm usually surrounded by dogs and lots of, lots of things, um, you know, that I've had forever that inspire me. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I love to walk and go to the movies. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have two close friends I show it to first. One one is my best friend since I was 15 years old, and she read my work all through college, and, um, and then another writer friend. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, rejection is hard. You know, I, I always tell my students, you zip up every layer of skin you can possibly find hanging in your closet and um you know just just keep going i mean I, I don't think rejection is is ever easy but it's part of the process and what is your favorite word i love this question because there are so many favorite words um the way they sound and i'm i'm I had several, but, but I finally, I, I think I'm going to go with benevolence. It's fun to say it's lyrical and the meaning is, is one I like. Thank you so much for your time and for this conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank you. What a pleasure. If you like today's show with Jill McCorkle, author of the short story collection, Old Crimes, check out my interview with Karen Russell on her short story collection, Orange World. We talked about the sounds of language, first meetings, and difficult endings. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 440 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. 
Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Ilion Wu, Diane Seuss, and Kava Akbar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.